Hello and welcome to Inside B2B, a podcast series from Marketing Week and e-consultancy sponsored by Omobono, exploring excellence in B2B marketing. Over the course of this second season, we'll be looking at how B2B brands deliver digital experiences for customers that equal their counterparts in consumer marketing. Our subject today is e-commerce. Now, e-commerce has not only become more fundamental to delivery for B2C brands in the past year, it is becoming more central to B2B success too. And like with B2C brands, it has required accelerated transformation in approach, in organisation, in the nature of relationships, in the very job of B2B marketing. So how do you best prepare to meet fresh needs and avoid pitfalls? And what does success look like now and indeed in the future? Just some of the questions we will seek to answer today. I have three loaded guests to help us get to the bottom of some of those issues. Firstly, Simon McAvoy, who's the head of strategy at Omobona. Welcome, Simon. Hi, yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. I've got Chaz Maloney, who's marketing director for Rico UK and Ireland. Hello, Chaz. Hi, Ross. Thanks for passing us along. No worries. And Mark Cousins, head of marketing for Europe at Marketa. Hello, Mark. Morning, Russell. Morning to you all, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Let's get straight into it. We'll well, excuse, I'm going to use the reality TV show uh, staple journey uh, to kind of assess where you've come from and where you are right now. I mean, pretty much every conversation that anybody has has to be in the context of what's happened in the last 15 months, as I teed up in my introduction. That's changed the game for marketers, certainly with regards to e-commerce. So let me begin with you, Mark. Uh, Tell me where you were up until March 2020 in terms of your employment and use of e-commerce and compare that to where you are now. I think, Russell, we we were in a relatively good position because one of the things that Marketa has done right from the outset is look to redefine its engagement process with potential customers. We're operating in the payments technology space where traditionally a, te- a typical sale would be uh, orchestrated probably through PowerPoint pitches, then into a commercial negotiation, then potentially into an integration scenario. So right from the outset, Marketa exposed its technology through open APIs and sandbox, which meant that anyone could engage with the technology right from the very beginning. And then it, you know, if they could see how that technology could actually work for them and uh, enable them going forwards, then you can have the conversations, the commercial conversations and so forth. So really what we've been doing recently is building on that. And really it's been about looking at our messages to the different stakeholders involved in a procurement process with the payments technology and making sure that we're providing the right educational content uh, and empowering them to understand as much as possible about uh, the, the potential marketer experience. How much more do you do now as a percentage of sales on e-commerce than what you were doing previously? Well, it's a lot more because of the, the mix has changed. Certainly the marketing mix over the last year has changed. I mean, you know, events used to be a significant percentage of what we would have done previously. So now really it's about how we can use the digital channels more effectively. I think one of the challenges that we've had to look at is um, there's been a lot of overload and potential fatigue. So it's about how you provide more richer and more valuable content to those audiences that you're engaging with. I mean, is that the biggest challenge generally that you're facing here in terms of the switch, that kind of 
I don't know, fatigue when it comes to e-commerce? What would be your biggest challenge? I think it's that initial engagement um, and how you instigate that initial engagement. I, I think we've all seen over the last year the increase in emails, the increase in LinkedIn messaging, the increase of web tracking and online advertising directed towards you. So for me, it's about how you can be original, how you can cut through, and it comes down to relevance and a lot of luck on the timing front as well. Thank you for that. Just hold uh, further thoughts just for the moment, Mark, and I'll bring Chaz in basically for the same question, really. Where were you prior to March 2020 in terms of e-commerce and uh, has that moved since? Yeah, thanks, Russell. I think we were in the privileged position that we had an established e-commerce platform that we were serving a client base with back in March 2020. What we've seen is an increase probably fourfold in the number of users on that platform. One of our key drivers over the last 15 months is to try and make life as easy as possible for our customers, try and make us as easy to do business with. And one of the key drivers around that, of course, was actually the customers were largely not in their offices. A lot of those were working from home. So we had to provide the same services, the same support, the same infrastructure and the same delivery standards that the client would expect when they were based in their offices in London, Edinburgh, Glasgow, wherever they might be, to their homes in the suburbs or out in the countryside. So I think that was where we were very lucky. The growth has been largely driven by the ability to service people beyond the office space. And our key drive, I guess, in that time really was trying to make Rico as easy to deal with as possible, try and make it as easy as possible for the clients to engage. And they almost felt like there were benefits from hybrid working or remote working as opposed to working from the office. Is it better now, do you think? I mean, that's a big and loaded question, I appreciate. But obviously a lot of changes that everybody's gone through, whether or not it be in B2B or B2C, weren't anticipated. The pace has moved quicker than perhaps could ever have been imagined. Are you in a position now, if it's not too early to make an objective assessment, where where the switch has actually improved things for the better? It wasn't just a necessary switch or acceleration, but it's for the better, ultimately. I think it's accelerated the way that we do business and people have changed how they want to do business. I saw a, a quote from IDC in some research I was reading the other evening, which talked about two years of digital transformation took place in two months last year. And I think that's not going to reverse. We're going to see that carrying on. So I think it is better, but I still think despite the better environment, whether it be e-commerce or any digital platform, I think there is a need to get the balance right between how we engage with customers going forward and how we engage with prospects going forward. There's going to be still multiple ways. It may well be that more complex sales and more complex solutions are not right from an e-commerce perspective, but certainly it will play a huge part of it. So I think the answer to your question is, yes, it's better, but it doesn't mean that it's going to keep going that way. And it's the only way I think it's about getting the balance right, listening to the customer and finding ways to engage with them and deal with them in a way that actually gives them the most satisfaction from the products and services you're providing. Almost the same as it ever was in many ways. I'll um, we'll, we'll reflect a little bit more and I'll bring Mark and Simon in a bit later to reflect on what happens next. But thank you for teeing us up nicely there, Chaz. And I'll bring Simon in uh, now, if I could. Uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast will still be 
at the relative early stages, I suppose, again, to use that word for the third time, journey uh, in terms of e-commerce. I mean, what would be your advice to people who were starting, if not from the beginning, certainly at the early stages? I mean, what kind of things do they need to make sure of? What kind of foundations do people need to have in place if they're going to make a success of more business by e-commerce? Yeah, thanks, Russell. And I mean, you know, we've we've seen that sort of urgent shift to start selling online and remote selling. You're very much sort of we've been very face to face with it over the last 12 months with our clients. You know, we saw that for some of our clients, that moment of panic and downing tools for a few months when the when the pandemic hit last year. And then this realization that things are going to have to change and change fast. And, and I think that the, the areas that people want to start looking at really as urgently as they can would be, first of all, customer insight is, is a massive place to start. I mean, really, if, if you haven't already got a very good sense of your customer journey, really mapped it out in detail, what are all the touch points that your different personas and different customer types, actually where, where they engage with your brand in the digital space and where there's an opportunity to introduce elements of e-commerce and to assist the sales process using digital. I think that's a really good place to start because that can, if you, if you build that customer journey with a cross-functional team, that's a, a manageable project. You can get started pretty much straight away and it can teach everyone in the business where the opportunities actually lie. Uh, and when we run those projects, it's very rare to get less than 10 to 15 really good revenue generating opportunities from that kind of a workshop and that kind of experience. The other thing I think that people should start looking at pretty much straight away is data. Data is usually the big stumbling block for B2B brands who are trying to engage in the e-commerce space. The data is in all sorts of different places in their business. It might be held in some you know, different databases. Sometimes it's on Excel sheets, in people's inboxes, all sorts of sales data and behavioral data. And all of that is going to be essential for being able to you know, run, for example, even the most basic of personalization experiments on your site. You're going to need that data normalized and in a good place. So that's, again, something that you can start thinking about straight away. And then, and then of course, there's all the other stuff, the technology, the you know, or, or, you know, integration with supply chains. It, it all, you know, that, that'll all unfold over time. I mean, it's no small task uh, that you've laid out there. I mean, when you talk about customer insight or the process of discovery again, as per what Chas was talking about, that's um, that seems to me to be almost a one-on-one when you are uh, launching a new product proposition or, or, or service. But just calling back to what you were saying about organisation, yes, you need to organise data because with many organisations, large and small, data is held in different pockets, perhaps even owned by different uh, stakeholders and units and teams. But is there a structural uh, necessity here is uh, do uh, organizations b2b organizations in particular need to set up differently uh, or is it more of a cultural or mindset challenge or both yeah i mean i mean the, the real challenge for e-commerce is that it's a piece of digital transformation that actually touches virtually every part of your business so whether somebody is whether you're talking about sales key account management, even R&D and product development, e-commerce has some roots into every part. So if you're a very siloed organization where people tend to work in these little silos, they don't really talk to each other, you're going to find e-commerce really difficult. You know, it's it's going to be very, very painful. People aren't going to be collaborating in the right way. You're not going to get the insight into the product that you need. So 
there is an organizational structural shift that needs to happen where you need to start thinking in terms of cross-functional teams that work together in very agile ways around specific parts of the product, specific parts of the experience. But there is also this cultural shift as well, which is really important to bear in mind. And again, there's lots of B2B organizations that work in very heavily regulated environments and they have quite risk-averse cultures where they don't want to make mistakes. They can't, they don't feel like they can experiment for fear of getting things wrong. Unfortunately, in e-commerce, it's all about experimentation. You're always in beta. You're always testing and trialing and trying to find new ways to do things better. So really culturally, there needs to be at least part of your business that you loosen up a little bit and let people fail and let people learn from failure and let people experiment and think for themselves really make decisions for themselves as teams and that, and that could be quite a tough cultural shift but in our experience you have to face into that at some point you either do it at the start of a project or you do it you know once you've launched something and it's what you're 12 months in and everyone's trying to work out how to make it work and, and you're going to have to face that cultural change at some point and you talk about well tough challenges and there are many there that you've detailed uh, if i could bring mark in um one challenge, well, forever and a day, particularly in B2B, is the relationship between sales and marketing. What or how, most to the point, has uh, the increase in e-commerce changed the role specifically of sales in an organisation? I think this, this division that historically has been between sales and marketing, I think if you really want to get a tighter organization where the departments are optimized and they're bringing their best to the organization, then you're really looking at a real closer alignment. I mean, here we talk about go-to-market and what's our go-to-market team strategy, and that's sales marketing partnerships. And it's really about defining the roles of each of those departments very clearly and, and defining the interactions. From a marketing perspective now, I, I see that marketing has a lot more responsibility right at the front end of a sale in terms of either the qualification that they're doing and the insights and the data that they can bring to the organization through, yeah, whether it's web metrics, whether it's, you know, tools like Engageo or DemandBase, um, you know, marketing is becoming incredibly sophisticated. And really it's about how you freeing your sales team up to do the best work that they can do. You know, they can go and hunt uh, more valuable customers. Um, but it's really about defining those areas in which the functions work and operate, but being tight in doing so. So you're maximizing the efficiency of the overall organization. I mean, you touched upon it there. I mean, the, the role of a salesperson in this new environment using these new tools isn't quite as it was. But from what you're saying, it's freed them to explore other opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can be viewed as fear um, if you're not careful and if you're in the wrong siloed organizations, because it's like, you know, what's marketing doing now and why are they interacting or instigating relationships at that point? Whereas if you've got the right mentality, it's about opportunity and it's about, okay, so I don't need to spend my time doing that hard work because it often is grunt work, that starting, that instigating, that uh, opening up opportunities it's not easy so if you can see it from uh, a richer mindset then you know that's a huge positive for the organization and it's about where they're best placed to put their effort at the end of the day which um, hopefully will be rewarding for the whole company thank you for that mark Charles, can i can bring you in on the same question really i mean has there been an increase in tensions uh, in your organization between yourself and your sales counterparts and uh, if so, why? And uh, what have you done about it? 
I'd like to think that we had a good relationship between sales and marketing prior to the last 15 months. And I am very confident that actually the relationship has improved even more over that time. And I think that's, that's, that's probably because the sales team saw where we were adding the value day to day and not just, you know, on a quarterly basis when we presented the data back to the sales leaders. I passionately believe that sales and marketing are one function. We all have common and shared objectives, or at least we should have. If you don't, then you will have this cultural challenge and these breakdowns and silos. And, uh, and certainly from an e-commerce perspective, we got those guys on board really early, understood the value to them, you know, freeing their time up to deal with more complex sales that generally were more margin rich is where they wanted to spend their time, not on supplying their customers with important transactional level services. So getting them on board was really important. It, it was a challenge. Absolutely. The salespeople saw... They were a little bit cynical. They saw potential loss of control of the client. Are they eventually going to move this client to a fully self-service basis? Am I going to be out of the loop? There's lots of challenges the salespeople saw. And we had to sort of just take those barriers down one by one by one. And and ultimately, dare I say it, you know, how salespeople are rewarded is part of supporting that change of culture and how it works. But I, I, I think very positively about the relationship, and I think it's worked really well. But getting them on board early was the critical function and treating it as a joint business effort, not a marketing initiative, not a sales initiative, but a business function that's actually going to benefit everyone. And that's that's really why I think we've had the success we've had over the last 15 months on the platform. Again, I suppose it speaks to uh, the point that Simon was making around it being a cultural challenge as much as a challenge of technology or an operational one thank you for that chance i mean simon in terms of your interaction with your clients have you got any observations generally about how the dynamic between sales and marketing has changed yeah i mean i mean first of all i would say you know anyone listening just follow exactly what Chaz just said because that, that was pretty much uh, spot on as far as i'm concerned i would say just to add as well there are actually really interesting opportunities for content involving the sales team and content creation for the site so if you're thinking about one of the things that people do really well it's they they can build trust and reassure at moments when people feel stressed or anxious or unsure and so actually one of the things we've done with quite a few clients is taken subject matter experts, salespeople in the business, created video content where they're talking through really challenging parts of the sale, where they may be setting expectations around service and delivery. They might be demoing products. There's loads of opportunities for actually taking the salespeople and bringing them into the e-commerce journey itself. And that can be really high value because you can effectively take one person and scale them up to be able to reach many, many thousands of customers. So it's um, an interesting way to look at it in terms of engaging sales in the overall project. I mean, sticking with you, Simon, I mean, is it possible to integrate both sales and marketing messages and have aligned objectives in a, in a single site obviously the work comes before that by the sounds of what you're all saying in many ways in terms of aligning both with respect to kpis and culture but from a site point of view can it be both things to both people yeah, I mean, I mean, go on apple.com today and you'll see someone doing it exceptionally well. I mean, it's just, it, it's completely possible. Of course it is. The way we tend to look at it is thinking about the site structure in a kind of layered approach. So you've got these sort of layers that are all there to do different jobs. 
So there's some layers which are there to land maybe insights and discovery around different, you know, your thought leadership, that that sort of top layer of building consideration and favorability. But then your site layers down into ever more detailed specifications around the products that you sell getting right down into the granularity of how people can compare one product to another, diagnostic tools that help them and diagnose what what product's right for them. And then right down into the kind of buying layer, you know, actually how are people making a purchase and, and how is that fulfilled? So thinking about the site structure in these kind of layers, and then of course you'll have many, many pages in each layer, okay? So that depending on the products that you're selling and so on. So, but thinking about that structure allows you to start thinking about the different sorts of messaging you need at different levels and the different calls to action at different levels as well. And of course, you know, buyer journeys are messy you know people are moving from one layer to the other all the time but if you can think of the structure in that way it allows you to structure content in a way that actually guides people through the buying process on your site mark if i could bring you in and just recalling something that you were saying earlier on about the changing role of the marketer i mean there's been a load of talk about shifts trends things that might be permanent or otherwise but one thing I've certainly heard with respect to B2C at least is that the rise of e-commerce means that there are tactical and executional shifts to the job of marketing I mean do you see that in in how your role has perhaps changed over the last 16 months Yes, I think the one thing that is constant about marketing is the channels are expanding, the effectiveness via channels changes dramatically. And really, it's about trying to understand where where next. Um, but ultimately, it's about having solid foundations, right? So it's about understanding what your messaging is, being confident on your messaging, and making sure the quality of whatever you're pushing out through whichever channel is of the utmost quality. And then you come back and you measure and you look at the effectiveness. And, you know, I'll be honest, there's things we try, they just don't work. We try and get to the bottom of why they don't work. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, you try again and then, you know, you move on. And this is the cycle of marketing, but there's always a foundation that you come back to. And that, that foundation has to be, you know, understanding your personas, real strong messaging, high quality work. They've got to be the bedrock of what you're doing uh, and measuring robustly measuring everything you do Hmm. it's a theme emerging here that uh, understanding and executing the fundamentals is as important as ever uh chas can i ask you the same question in terms of the role and the job of marketing and how that might have changed over the last 15 months or so yeah, I, I think the, the big change that we've probably seen, and we were seeing it, I think, beforehand, but it's, again, as many things did in terms of tra- driving transformation through COVID, we've, we've seen that everybody needs to be data-focused. No matter what your function within marketing, data is now the lifeblood of what we do. And Simon made some really good points earlier about the difficulty of actually getting persona data in, into the systems that's usable because it may not be sitting in the platform that you want. And certainly we've seen a sort of a, We certainly had a data before content approach before, but now it's in capitals. And it is the the watchword for everybody in marketing before we do any activity, pick up any agile approach, look at any sub campaign uh, supporting our our major campaigns that have been running over the period. It's what is the data stating? What is the data using? What data do we have? And what's the anticipated ROI based on that subset of persona and data? So I think the big change for me is everybody's had to become 
not necessarily an expert, but everybody's had to understand the data within their role much, much better. And as a leadership team, what we've done is almost started with the data at every meeting. Okay, let's look at the data. Let's look at the subsets. Let's break it down. Let's look at the return investment, the margin by sector, by market, etc. And then it's really empowered us. As I, uh, I said before, there's never been a bad time to be a marketeer because you have so much data at your fingertips in terms of what customers are doing and how they're engaging. And that that's increased exponentially over 15 months. Of course, the buyers have just as much information about the suppliers as well. So it, it's a two-way street that really makes sure that we've got to get the data right before we even start to go to personalization, looking at testing, you know, and I support Simon's comment earlier about failing. It's just about failing fast. No, don't be scared to fail. Get on with it, but fail fast, learn, go again. And it has to be data first from is the biggest lesson learned for us over the last 15 months. I suppose with data, though, I mean, as much as it, it offers people a wealth of opportunities, it can, well, in the wrong hands anyway, both lead to decision-making almost exclusively based upon past behaviour as well as obviously getting in the way of, uh, of I don't know, human insight as much as anything. I mean, this is a, you'll be, pleased to know or even edified to find out that these are the conversations exactly the kind of conversations that i will have with b2c uh, marketers all of the time Uh, there's no distinction or difference at all between some of those challenges and and realization of some of the opportunities that data can offer Uh, that's just by way of teeing up you simon Uh, i mentioned in my intro that we're uh, looking to do with this podcast uh, many things, but uh, look at what perhaps lessons that B2C marketers can learn from B2B and vice versa. I mean, is there anything that you have witnessed that you're aware of in the way that B2C marketers are employing, executing and realising some of the opportunities that e-commerce has provided uh, that B2B marketers could learn from or, or even the other way around? Well, I mean, look, you know, there's there's some analogies here and, and it's it, it very important. I mean, the B2C buying experience as in general, and I speak in very much in general here, is better than the B2B buying one at the moment overall, okay, across the board. And particularly around the, actually, we talked a bit about the fundamentals today, particularly around the fundamentals like visibility and expectation management on delivery, which is a huge issue for B2B. It, it's actually far more business critical, it's far more critical to someone's life than in B2C. If your thing arrives a day late from Amazon, it's usually not a massive issue. If something arrives a week late in B2B, that's an entire supply chain that could have been disrupted. So those sorts of basics are things that B2B e-commerce brands really do need to focus on and get right. But there there are really significant differences as well. And I think this is something, although you know we're all B2C and B2B customers in some respects, if we're in you know you're always selling to human beings, but the conditions those humans in are really different. The fact that people are buying as part of a group, for example, in B2B massively changes the way you have to message to them, hugely changes the way that you might think about producing content to support the buyer journey. You've got people who maybe their job is just to research suppliers and find out who's offering what suppliers, but then they have to go back and internally sell to a whole bunch of other stakeholders. Well, you need to be producing content that's going to assist them in doing that. That's not something you really have to think about in B2C e-commerce. You've also got this thing that, you know, typically the kind of products that people are buying in B2B can be very technical and and actually very large and, and expensive as opposed to B2C where there tend to be simpler products and lower cost. So again, these all change the dynamics of what we're offering. So I think there are definitely lessons to be learned from the B2C buying experience, but B2B 
brands need to really focus on their customer, what their customer needs, speak to their customers and understand how to build the experience around them. If I could bring Mark and Chaz in on this uh, on this question of what it is that B2C brands perhaps are doing that B2B could learn from uh, what ground needs to be made up. Mark, I'll ask you that question first if I could. I think from my perspective, Russell, I look at the creativity in, in B2C um, and I look at some of the tactics that are employed uh, and really that energises um, some of the activity we do because I, I, I look at it and reflect it with my team and you, you kind of look sometimes B2B, it's so formal, it's a bit staid, it's very safe sometimes and really it's about perhaps how we can bring a bit more energy into what we do and a bit more excitement into what we do. That's one of the one of the fundamentals I look at when I look at um, B2C marketing. Chaz, a final word from you on this question. Uh, energy, excitement? Um, I, I can't think who said it, but it, I was just reflecting back on a statement that somebody's made and I can't think when or where, but the statement was, was akin to when you're buying in a B2C world, you're buying largely based on emotion and personal, very personal experience. When you're buying in a B2B world, you're buying to make sure you don't get sacked. So it's a pretty uh, extreme view in terms of the B2B buyer. And, and I think for that reason, that's why maybe we don't see the creativity and the, the excitement that we see in B2C organizations. But, but I also think it's about individuals, it's about having the culture that allows you to experiment, to be brave, to try something new. Um, sometimes we're restricted because of the nature of the brands that we support and the brands that we work for and the values that they try to portray to the market. And some of that creativity and some of that changes don't always reflect the brand values or the message they want to get through to the buyers. I, I think for me, the big lesson for B2C is, is it without repeating the point, is they are brilliant at looking at data and customer insight and the buyer's journey. And that's got to be the heart and the start point for everything we do. They focus so much on customer experience and measure it and refine it and measure it and refine it. It's a real plan, do, check, action approach, which you know I'm hugely jealous of because that, that's the agile and dynamic approach that they very clearly are very, very good at that we don't see as deeply in B2B, if at all. But I don't see why not. Why can't we do that? We can get better data there. We can make those decisions and we can act far more uh, actively to give our customers that super customer experience that they're looking for. Mm. I mean, there's some great work that... The B2B Marketing Institute, which I think is housed by LinkedIn, have done on long-term brand building, storytelling and creativity and the value of that in B2B, which I would heartily recommend everybody listening and you to uh, check out because uh, it turns out, albeit there are nuances, it is more complicated. The stakes are higher and stakeholder management is perhaps a very different beast, but uh, plenty to be learned from Simon. You were eager to contribute to this conversation. Yeah, I just have one more comment to make on that. And I think it's we're being very generous to B2C here. It's not a secret. It's no surprise that the biggest winners in B2C e-commerce were people that were not brands before e-commerce came along. So they were not existing retail businesses that brought their business model online. They were brand new entrants into the market who rethought their whole business from an e-commerce perspective and, th and thought it from the bottom up. And I can see B2B brands making some of the mistakes that traditional retailers made when they tried to bring their business online, you know, five, 10 years ago. And that is to basically look at the way your business works today and just try and make it digital. And, and you've got to get out of that mindset. You've got to rethink your business, rethink your selling process now with an entirely new lens on it. It's not the case that you can just take your existing business model and stick it online and that'll do. 
Absolutely not. Unilever, I was talking to Connie Brahms at, uh, at recently a, an event that we were hosting and she was talking about the need to be digital as opposed to do digital and the distinction being you can't just repeat everything that you did in one environment and do it on another but uh, well balanced or at least a good attempt at uh, providing some uh, balance Simon there is plenty of things you know that one can learn from the other and there are plenty of pitfalls that both have uh, have uh, come a cropper with as well so moving on I mean another conversation that is a very alive one in B2C uh, be interesting to get your perspective from a B2B point of view is who should own the e-commerce channel the subject of ownership really i mean should that be marketers given that this is not just the shop window but the shop itself now simon i'll i'll continue with you on that question i mean is it as simple as one uh, unit department owning it or is it is the answer it depends <laughs> well i i wonder if to be even more obtuse the answer is should we be talking about ownership at all i mean I think maybe the the problem is with organizational structures is that you do get into this, well, here's the thing, who's going to own it? And actually e-commerce, the reality is it's a cross-functional, cross-departmental initiative that's going to touch so many different teams. And if anyone starts to think that they're the owners of it, there's going to be challenges and politics and problems. And what's the point of that? The customer loses. So I have seen in most cases, in most businesses, there is some sort of e-commerce team that's created and there is some e-commerce sort of function that owns the delivery of things and the oversight of things. But that team does tend to be cross-functional. There's people in it from sales, there's people in it from marketing, customer service, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still, you know, yes, it's sitting somewhere, but it's sitting in a cross-functional place. And I think that's probably the best way for brands to look at it. I think if you're going to start giving it to an existing department saying, right, you own it, you're going to run into all sorts of problems in delivery. Yeah, I mean, it speaks back to your question of, uh, well, I suppose structure but this sense of shared ownership, I mean, I, I asked the question, but I, I could have anticipated the answer. People listening can't see Chaz, but Chaz was nodding in agreement enthusiastically there. I mean, how does it work where you are, Chaz? Yeah, I think I think the point, Russell, is, is it's not just, um, and it's, it's not halfway down the line. It's from the start. You need to get all those departments bought in at the ground level, you know, sales, marketing, then you bring IT because they probably want to own the technical platform or certainly the infrastructure that it sits on, finance in terms of reporting, operations, logistics, you know, everyone's got a part to play in creating that customer experience. And where I've seen this not work well, not not in Rico where I work now, but in historically is when one department takes ownership, back to your question, and then tells the other departments and other stakeholders what their role in this platform is going to be without consultation or understanding of the needs and wants of those individual areas. So without a shadow of a doubt, it goes way beyond marketing, way beyond sales, it goes way beyond the number of functions. But getting everyone involved at the start is going to lead to success. Bringing people in later will just cause more problems in my experience. Yeah, again, I suppose it's about making sure that you join the dots between brand, between brand and sales and technology teams. I mean, it can't be owned in isolation. Mark, I assume anyway that you would be in agreement with Jazz and Simon on that. Yeah, I mean, here we talk about, and I mentioned at the beginning, a joint go-to-market approach with all the key functions absolutely aligned and understanding how they play their role in that go-to-market scenario. And it's absolutely vital. It's about the orchestration. It's about you all working together uh, and not pulling in different directions. 
Absolutely wise words. Uh, one final question for you all, if I, if I could. Uh, I'm going to ask you to think forward. I mean, what's next for uh, e-commerce? What are the things that will define future success that you need to get sorted and uh, sorted out quickly? Um, I've got to come to somebody to answer that first question. So I'm going to come to you, Simon. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to give you some really kind of thoughtful answer about the role any of AI and machine learning any or answer. any answer, the sort of the role of AI and machine learning and how, you know, it's it's going to be sort of smart websites that morph to every customer. I mean, the, the honest truth is I don't think, I, I, I don't, I think we're too early in this journey to start thinking about what's the next big thing. I don't think we're over the first big thing yet until we're at a stage where it's commonplace to be able to place orders for B2B products and services online, for those orders to be delivered and exactly when people think they are, for people to have notifications that let you know exactly where they are in the process, for it to be easy to repeat purchase without having to go through a whole load of, you know, be able to find the product you ordered before and et cetera. Until those fundamentals are in place, I think we're too early in the journey to be talking about, you know, what's the next big thing. Hmm. Comes back to fundamentals, different kinds, but fundamentals. I think so. Uh, Mark, let me uh, ask you that question. Uh, I, I echo the same sentiments. I mean, I've just scrawled on a piece of paper. It's the continued evolution for me. Um, we've talked about about data. We've talked about ownership. Um, there's there's so many things that need fine tuning. Um, and I, 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 same as Simon, I don't think there's giant leaps going to be made here. I think it's just about how you continue to fine tune that engine in the short term for sure. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Chaz, final word for you. Yeah, at the risk of, of being quite boring, I, I echo exactly what Simon and Mark have said. You know, when you are creating an Amazon type experience in the B2B world, then that's when, you know, we've say we've, we've reached the end of stage one. I think probably the other challenge we need to think about is how do we get the balance right from a customer experience perspective between using the e-commerce platform or e-commerce platforms and dealing with sales and account and directorship and account management to ensure that you get the balance right between the consultative sale that you need to actually deliver the right solution in the first place and then allowing the clients to transact it in a way that gives them all the benefits of purchasing in a B2C type style. So I think they are, they're very clearly the next steps for me. Thank you. You say boring. I say simple, cogent and straightforward advice for everybody listening. Thank you for that, Chaz. And thank you to Simon and Mark for sharing your thoughts, your insight and your experiences. And thanks for everybody that listened. Until next time on Inside B2B, goodbye. You've been listening to Inside B2B from Marketing Week, sponsored by Omovono, with me, Russell Parsons. This podcast was produced by Tim O'Donoghue from Bauer London Creative. Look out for the next episode when we will continue our look at how B2B brands deliver digital experiences. Until next time, goodbye.